We're continuing this morning in Mark's Gospel. Um, we're at the end of chapter 11. It's on page 717 if you're using the Pew Bibles. Um, as I mentioned last week, we're still, you know, these last chapters of Mark are, are lengthy. And uh, we're, we're not near the end of Mark's Gospel, but we're in the last week of Jesus' ministry. And so, so much of the Gospel is, is the story of all that happens each day of uh, this week. So, we'll be on... Um, on Tuesday today, as far as where our text is located in terms of that, that week of Holy Week. Um, and one of the things, of course, that characterizes these chapters is this tension, is this great tension between Jesus and the religious leaders and how that's playing out before the watching public, before all of these people who are assembled in Jerusalem for the Passover. There's this conflict, uh, and we get the sense that it had in some ways gripped the city, we had to get the sense that it was some, in some ways a very public thing that was going on uh, that would be um, resolved uh, at the cross in terms of the, the religious leaders and their desires. The day begins on this Tuesday as the disciples encounter the withered fig tree, which of course we talked about last week. Our passage picks up where Jesus and his disciples then come into the city proper. So we'll look at it from Mark 11 starting in verse 27. This is the testimony of the evangelist inspired by the Holy Spirit. This is the word of God. They arrived again in Jerusalem, and while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked, and who gave you authority to do this? Jesus replied, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism, was it from heaven or from men? Tell me. They discussed it among themselves, and they said, If we say from heaven, then he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, they feared the people, for everyone held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. And Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. Please pray with me. Father, we do come to your word as those who uh, are hungry and need to be fed. We come to your word as those who are lost and need to be guided. We come to your word as those who are discouraged and need to find strength. Lord, we come to your word as those who uh, are ignorant and we need to understand. So we ask that you would be the one who teaches and guides and directs and encourages your people as we encounter your word this morning. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. We have a strange relationship with authority, don't we? As people, we see all the time how we're under authority in many relationships that we have. And in, in many ways, it's completely natural. We live under the authority of teachers. We live under the authority of bosses and police officers and governmental people and parents and many other kinds of authority structures are all around us, and we're very used to it. We recognize the role that authorities have. We have uh, expectations that authorities will be just and that they will use their power for good, for our good and for the common good of everyone around us. And so everyone lives with all kinds of authorities, right? But in some areas, in some institutions of our culture, 
almost any authority is perceived to be wrong or dangerous. Particularly, I think this is how the church and other religious uh, authorities are viewed. Religions in general, not just the church, but a lot about the church, I think. That in our culture at large, outside of the church, of course, people generally have sort of an unfavorable disposition towards religious authority. They sort of are skeptical, aren't they? It's something I think that we feel often too. Sometimes when you hear a story about a church uh, exercising God's command to do church discipline for some public figure who's done something, you, you wonder, did they do it well? Is that really what they needed to do? Why am I reading this story in this article? It's making us all look kind of bad, right? It makes us uncomfortable when a church actually exercises its authority. It makes our culture very uncomfortable when religious people assert any kind of authority, even not towards them, even just towards and among ourselves. I was reminded recently that in the, I think it was in the mid-1980s, there was a minister in the PCA who was accused of holding some unorthodox theological views. He was accused, basically, of heresy by someone else in his presbytery or by a group of other people in his presbytery. And so the Book of Church Order has sort of an outline for these situations, and so they work through the normal process, and the presbytery decided to hold a trial. And so in this trial, the accusers would present their evidence, and the man would have to answer for uh, his views, and then the, the presbytery would adjudicate the, um, the situation. And this actually has happened many times in the history of the PCA. It happens, uh, you know, maybe a few times even a year where there'll be some uh, issue that someone holds and, and they'll have to be examined. In this case, the story made the local newspaper and then the national news picked it up and it went viral back before the internet. Time magazine sent a reporter to scorn the crazy idea that the PCA was having a modern-day heresy trial. The charges ended up basically being unfounded. There wasn't really that much to report. No one was burned at the stake. The minister continued serving faithfully in the denomination. Right? But the reaction was very strong. That, that a church would assert its authority, that, that there would be such a thing that we would have to adjudicate as heresy and orthodoxy. And it sounds like something sort of medieval to our culture, doesn't it? But Jesus establishes the fact that the church would have an authority structure based on, on his authority as the Son of God and based on the written authority of the Word of God. And we see so clearly in this passage how authority can be used, how it can be misused and abused by religious people, by those who are in power. And that's part of what makes Jesus so upset about what's happening at the temple and that these leaders, the religious leaders of his day, who have lost their way and they've led many astray in their practices of worship. Last week I mentioned that there's much more that we could say as we got into the story of the fig tree and all of that. And as Steve even preached the week before on Jesus' actions at the temple, um, the, the cursing and the withering of the tree, there's really a lot going on here. And so I wanted to just take a couple minutes to summarize three points because it, it affects how, uh, it explains why the religious leaders 
are so upset with Jesus. It explains why when he comes into Jerusalem, they go out to talk to him and try to settle this issue of authority. So uh, I'll read the verses back in the section a little bit before, in verse 15. So this was the day before. This was Monday of Holy Week, verse 15. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple area and he began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. The religious leaders understand even much better than we do. They understand because they were there and they saw it. They understand the symbolism of Jesus' actions at the temple. That's why they were so offended and so threatened. Jesus had criticized them on a number of occasions, mostly in smaller groups, mostly not quite so publicly, and mostly not in Jerusalem. So for him to come into their temple grounds within the courts and disrupt everything, and bring the money changing to a halt and prevent people from carrying merchandise through the area and to gather a crowd as surely was the case. There must have been an enormous crowd there. And to criticize them very sharply, right? He's accusing them of making God's temple a den of robbers. Well, who are the robbers, right? The people running the temple. They know what, he, they know what he's saying, right? And we can only imagine how irate it made them. And we have to remember that as well that these three groups didn't really like each other. There was rivalry and there was politics among the three parties that comprised the Sanhedrin, the Jewish sort of religious ruling council. But they're united in their opposition to Jesus. How did he galvanize them so? Well, those are the, those are the three things that are so offensive to them that what he's doing at the temple. First, he's ask, acting as a prophet. He's acting as a judge. He's picking up their prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah, and he's using their words against them. And Mark gives us a two-sentence summary of Jesus' teaching at the temple, but imagine what, he, imagine what it really would have looked like. Imagine that he said many things, that he was teaching. He was teaching for an hour. He was teaching for multiple hours. He was pronouncing the judgment of the Old Testament prophets upon the present temple and upon the religious leaders. Explaining clearly to the crowd what he was teaching, right? So imagine that Jesus exposing their elaborate systems for defrauding pilgrims and making money. He's exposing how they've excluded the Gentiles by setting up all of these shops in the court of the Gentiles. Imagine what the, how they would have reacted, right? They would have been unable to do anything and furious about it. Fear of the crowds and fear of the Romans would have held them back. But, you know, we can see how upset they certainly must have been. Because of what he's doing to, the, to their practices. But also because of what he's declaring. And he's declaring that the temple is ending. That the function and the purpose of the temple, as, as they understood it, is short-lived. As we read the account, we notice that Jesus isn't really... Like we sort of talk about it like he's cleansing the temple. But he's not really cleansing and purifying the temple. He's probably actually really preventing people from offering their sacrifices or paying their temple taxes. They had all of these systems set up 
And he's preventing that. He turned over their tables. He's not letting them bring merchandise through. It reminded me of the words of the prophet Malachi, who wrote this. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors. He's talking about the temple. That you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts. Malachi is saying that it's better to stop worship at the temple than for these corrupt priests to continue the outward ritual from a wicked heart. And I think that's part of what Jesus is acting out here, right? He's really destroying their way of worship. Of course, he's not opposed to temple worship as God's law describes it in the Old Testament, but it become corrupted. And one of the charges that was that his accuser set against him at his trial before Pilate from Mark 14. It says, we, one of the witnesses says, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands and in three days I will build another. In Acts chapter 6, so this is some months or even years later at the trial of Stephen, that charge was still being leveled at Jesus' followers. We heard him say, that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. What everyone in power heard was the threat that Jesus was destroying their temple, that he was destroying their traditions, that he was destroying their religious way of life. And in a way, of course, he was. He was fulfilling it. He wasn't destroying it according to God's word in the Old Testament, of course. He was destroying the way they'd corrupted it. And and we see in the third point that Jesus is pointing to himself as the replacement. That there's a new temple in his body, as Jesus explains it in John 2 and in many other places. The religious leaders of the day understood how, in so many ways over the past few years... Jesus was reorienting God's law to speak about himself and to point to himself. And Jesus was putting himself in the center of God's relationship with his people. And he was making claims that only God could make. And he was speaking on his own authority, not the authority of the traditions of the elders. So all told then, right, does this help? Put it together so we can see clearly why they're reacting so strongly and why Good Friday will happen. This is why Good Friday will happen. In terms of the politics and the, and the anger of the religious leaders. They were afraid. They were jealous. They were angry. Jesus was a threat to all that they valued. Both in terms of their money and their power and their standing with the people. And all of the way that they conceived of their religious life. So this incident galvanizes them in their resolve to kill Jesus. And all of this, I think, really helps to explain the events of our passage this morning. Why do they come to him the way that they do? As we read in verse 27, they arrived again in Jerusalem, and while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked, and who gave you authority to do this? We get the impression that this is something of a delegation, Of these three groups, probably not an official delegation, right? But the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders are are those who comprise the Sanhedrin, and they are coming to talk to Jesus about what happened yesterday. 
These Greek, the, the Sanhedrin was the ruling council for the Jews. It was made up of 71 people. It had some political power. It had as much political power as the Romans would give it, right? The Romans were, over, were looking over their shoulders of everything. But the Sanhedrin's purpose really was religious power. That they uh, had oversight for the religion of the people. They controlled the temple. They controlled its uh, environs and all around it. Um, and of course, up to the limit of Rome, which had a garrison stationed right nearby. They had the authority to put people on trial for religious matters. And that's uh, how the trial begins in the trial of Jesus. What was operative at this time and was later codified in the Mishnah about 150 years later is the teaching that an appeal to a false authority in religious matters was a capital crime punishable by death. So according to their rules, if you're appealing to a false authority in a religious matter, that was a capital crime. And they didn't have the power from Rome to be able to actually carry out the death sentence on Jewish religious grounds. Romans would have sort of dismissed the whole thing, right? That's why they had to, you know, do all that they did at the trial. But they could pass the judgment. They could say that this person has made a false claim to authority in this religious matter and that that was a very serious uh, capital crime. And so they come to Jesus. They're not holding back in this case. They're not trying to be coy. It doesn't seem they're very direct. By what authority are you doing these things? And these things, I, don't, I think, means what happened yesterday at the temple and kind of everything that he's been doing. All that we've seen of the way that Jesus has exercised his authority to teach and to do miracles and to criticize them and all of it. By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you the authority to do this. The issue isn't even what Jesus did. They're not talking about why did you do that to the, to the money changers, right? They're saying, who authorized you to do it? Under whose authority are you operating? Who do you think you are? Who do you think put you in charge? Why is this the question that's burning for them? Well, it's, it's this authority question that's been circling in Mark's gospel since the very beginning. When we read that Jesus taught as those, uh, the people were amazed because Jesus taught with authority, unlike the religious leaders of the day, right? So since Mark chapter 1, all the way through, there's been this tension about authority and who's in charge. And, and, and that, of course, is their burning question. We have to understand a bit as well about how authority and tradition worked in first century Judaism. So a couple centuries before, between maybe 200 and 100 BC, you see things like the rise of the Pharisee movement. But as Judaism was developing, the law of Moses became elevated over most of the other aspects of the Old Testament. And much of the focus then turned to strictly legal issues. The rabbis began to debate what was allowed and what was not allowed in order to obey the law. If we have these laws, we codified them, we wrote them all down, there are 613 of them, and now we have to define how to obey and uh, what's allowed and what's not allowed in relation to all of these laws. You can see how this multiplied, and that was the thing that was, uh, that was taking up so much of the time and energy, uh, the religious energy and knowledge of the people. So, you know, they start to make hedges around the laws because they don't want people to break the laws unintentionally. 
or accidentally. So God says don't work on the Sabbath, and so you have to define what is work and how much is work. What can you do? What can you not do? And there are pages and pages and pages written in the course of time uh, about that. Mostly, actually, though, it wasn't written yet. Mostly it was the oral tradition that was being passed down from rabbi to student to rabbi to student. And there were different schools of thought that had developed. And along the way, right, this is the important part. (laughs) Along the way, each is pointing back to the elders for support of their position. Authority was derived from the older authoritative interpretations of the Bible. No one had authority unless they were standing on the shoulders of the giants before them. Right? No one said, this is what I think, this is what the law says. No one was saying that. Everyone was, by the time of Jesus, everyone was saying, Rabbi so-and-so said this, and Rabbi so-and-so said this, and Rabbi so-and-so said this. Right? That they weren't asserting their own kind of authority. No one was. They were all pointing back to the authority that had come from those before them. And so Jesus doesn't fit this program. He's a wild card, right? He's asserting a different kind of authority. And to them, that's no authority at all. Right? They think this authority question will really trip him up. Because according to their traditions, he doesn't have any authority. He doesn't have any credentials. He's not playing by their rules. And so they think that his opinions, of course, are worthless and invalid. And that everyone should be able to see that. They know that he can't answer their question according to their assumptions about how authority works, right? Because they know that he's not pointing to any other authorities. He's just pointing to himself all the time. I mean, it must have been very confusing and frustrating for them, right? He's not playing according to our rules. He doesn't understand how this works. Verse 29, Jesus replied, I will ask you one question. It's really, I'll ask you a word. Answer me. And I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism, was it from heaven or from men? Tell me. Jesus responds with a question, and he twice he says, answer me, tell me. It was a teaching technique of the day where you, you know, they give you a question, you respond with a question. And this is really clever because Jesus is completely turning the issue around, and he's catching them in a trap. He asks just a word. If John's baptism was from heaven that is from God, or from men? Where did John get his authority? And this wasn't a question that they could answer by appealing to the tradition of the elders. Right? They couldn't say, Rabbi so-and-so said it was, it was this. Like, that tradition hadn't developed yet. Because John was there, you know, just a year or two before, Right? They couldn't say, we know the answer to this based on the temple or our interpretation of the law or the power of Rome or any of the other ways that they sort of shored up their authority, right? So Jesus is forcing them to explicitly affirm or deny that John was a prophet. And so he's forcing them. It's so clever. It's amazing. He's forcing them to judge a question that was beyond their authority structure to decide. They couldn't interpret the law to get this question. They couldn't say, the tradition of the elders says. You see what, I'm, see what he's doing here? He's asking them to discern something spiritual. Not just quote from Rabbi so-and-so. Jesus is asking them, is God at work in your midst or not? Was God at work in the ministry of John or not? 
Jesus is challenging them, but it doesn't fit within their authority structure, right? They're not, you know, it's a, it's a mismatch for them as far as trying to be able to actually answer that question that requires spiritual discernment, that requires wisdom, that requires an active faith, actually. Verse 31. They discussed it among themselves and they said, if we say from heaven, then he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, dot, 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 it just, it really does just sort of cut off like that. They feared the people for everyone held that John really was a prophet. Instead of confronting the issue of John and actually dealing with that really important question, we see how Mark is showing us their desire to escape, their desire to equivocate, their desire to be swayed by public opinion, and to lack any kind of personal spiritual conviction. Right? They're truly caught in a dilemma. Because they didn't support John the Baptist. They stood in judgment of him. They didn't really think that he was the forerunner of the Messiah. If they believed John, then they should have believed Jesus. And only very few of them did. Mark reports to us, however, that everyone thought that John was a prophet. So, right, you can see that this is a miserable situation for them. It's not enough that Jesus didn't answer their questions so that they could further criticize him. Jesus is really making them look foolish in front of everyone. It's sort of the situation where the smartest guys in the room, in their own minds, are being trapped. And they're forced to admit that they don't know something that's really important. And so, so many times in the Gospels, we, say, we see Jesus say to people, Truly I say to you, on many occasions, when they express faith, and when they're really seeking them, right? Jesus says, truly I say to you, truly I say to you. He says it many times. Right here he says, neither will I tell you. Jesus steps out of the question, refuses to answer them explicitly, even though they know the answer. He's answered their question so many times and in so many different ways. He's asserted and shown his authority. It's an interesting story, isn't it? It's one of those where, after a while, you have to say, well, okay, enough about them. It's easy to criticize those terrible religious leaders. We can see so clearly their greed and their self-righteousness and all that's messed up about them. But what about us? Why is this passage here for us to read? How does it challenge us? today. The question of authority defines much of our lives, because often we have to choose what authority to sit under. Some of those are defined, some authorities are very clearly defined for us, but I think when it comes to what's really important, we have to be very careful who we listen to. We have to be very careful who to obey. If you have some kind of medical symptoms and you go online, you have 15 different doctors, right, who could tell you what the right treatment is or what the diagnosis is or, or whatever. You have to, they're the authorities, right, but they don't agree with it. You have to choose what to obey, and we have to be careful what we listen to. How does Jesus' authority fit into your worldview? 
What does it mean to you that he's really in charge? I think in the church we define, you know, we describe that all the time. That, uh, you know, we, we know that God's in charge. We know that we believe that more than other Christians do. Right? On the other hand, how often through the day do we stop and consider that Jesus is in charge? That he knew that uh, this would happen. That he knew that this traffic situation would happen. That he knew that this person would say this hurtful thing to me. That he knew that I would receive this diagnosis. That he knew. That he knew. How often do we think of that? And stop and consider that Jesus knew and that he's the Lord. And that he's the Lord of Lords. I was thinking about this. The word for Lord... We don't really ever use in English anymore outside of the church, do we? But where did that come from? Well, of course, it came from the early English translations of the Bible. So King James, and even earlier, as people were, were translating the Bible into English for the first time, they decided that the word Lord expressed for them something about who Jesus was. And we've sort of lost that, right? Because we don't live in in a feudal system, right? Where there are lords, right? Who was the lord? What did the lord mean? He was the really important man down the road or in the manor or at the nearby castle who'd been given land from the king. The lords were a very small percentage of the population. They were in the class of nobility. And so if you were a peasant on his farm, what was the lord to you? The lord was your boss? way he could tell you what to do the lord was your protector right he pledged uh to your safety as you worked for him and you also pledged to serve in his army if he was attacked right he was your judge he had the authority to settle uh civil disputes and things like that so so in the medieval english system or the feudal system of europe right the lord was a real person And the peasant would take an oath, a pledge of loyalty and faithfulness to their Lord to seal this relationship to be able to work on his land and have a piece of property and eke out a living. So as the early English translators were were trying to describe who Jesus is to the people, from Greek into English, they said, he's the Lord. He's the one that we pledge our loyalty to. He's the important person who's nearby, who's given authority from the king, who protects us, who settles disputes, who's involved in our lives, right? So so that brings the question to us of how have we pledged our loyalty to Jesus? Does he speak with authority in your life? Do you listen to his words and ponder them and submit to them, knowing that what he speaks is true and that he loves you greatly? In what ways do you live as though Jesus is not the authority in your life? If you travel around the world, if you've been other places, you know that Americans are stiff-necked, independent people. We have this innate distrust of authority. We hear a lot of voices every day telling us all kinds of things. How does Jesus' voice fit into the mix for you? Is his voice drowned out by all of the noise? 
How can we listen more carefully even this week? Is there something that he's calling you to do that you don't want to do? Is there some way that you're, you're holding back from submitting your life to him and pledging loyalty to him? Consider these things. In our passage this morning, we see that Jesus is an authority to himself. Of course, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, ruling over all things with their power, creating and sustaining all things. He has that authority as the creator, as the, every, the one who everything owes its existence to him. Yet as we come to the table, as we reflect on these things, we see that Jesus submits to the Father to give up his life as a ransom for many. He lays down his authority in that way to become the temple, to become the sacrifice, to be the lamb, to open a new and living way for all who believe. Amen. Please pray with me. Jesus, it's right for us to stop and think about how powerful you are. And what kind of authority your words should have in our lives. Help us not to be, not to be like the religious leaders of that day. Who would not submit. And who couldn't listen. But chose to fight instead. Father, we pray that you would indeed work, speak to us. Through your spirit. Help us to hear Uh, Help us to submit and respond. Even this week, as things come at us that are unexpected or difficult, uh, Father, help us to remember uh, your authority um, over all things and in our lives for our good. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.